Well, I want to get into the Word of God. I do appreciate the opportunity and the confidence that Bishop has in myself to come to the sacred desk in his absence and feel a Sunday morning. I do not take it lightly, and I so appreciate the opportunity to be able to preach to God's wonderful people. Amen, amen. Well, I have a short text, and it's very familiar. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 39, it says, For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And it is from verse 40 that I want to take the title for the message this morning. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. Amen. If we could lay our Bibles down, asking God to reach down and touch us each and every one, we need His anointing to continue in this service this morning. Let's talk to Him once again, saints of God. Hallelujah. Master, I thank you. God, you have been so very good and so kind to us this morning. Bless us, God, with your presence. We ask you, God, to reach down and touch us, God. Allow us to feel your presence in a mighty way. Hallelujah. Give us the grace, God, the strength to go through every trial. We ask you to touch, Master. In the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you, Savior. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You may be seated. In this familiar passage of Scripture, there is a bold command from the Apostle Peter. He gave it to those who were in attendance, and if those that are familiar with this passage of Scripture will understand that he had just finished preaching a message. And the action they were called to was not to find salvation within their own ability. I'll read just a brief commentary note from Dr. Albert Barnes. He provides a little bit of color on this phrase of save yourself. It says to preserve yourself from the influence or opinions or fate of this generation. It implies that they were to use diligence and effort to deliver themselves. God deals with people as free agents. He calls upon them to put forth their own power and effort to be saved. Unless they put forth their own strength, they will never be saved. And so he's calling our attention to that we don't grant unto ourselves salvation, but it is a condition that we must place ourselves in the right environment, leaning on the right things. And we know that salvation is not granted upon our ability to create or dispense a life-changing event. No one can walk up to me and say, Brother Golf. I want to be saved. Can you save me? I can save no one. There are people in our lives that are deemed as heroes or may have administered CPR, Brother Hilton, and had 
saved someone's life, but no one has ever had their soul saved at the hand of a man that here lives here on earth. None of us have the ability for us to be able to reach down in our wisdom and life experiences and draw from and begin, Brother Larson, begin to repair someone's life and restore them. None of us can. All that we can do is share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation is granted. It is is granted upon our ability to obey the word of God. And salvation is the result of surrender. Surrender of one's will, one's desires, everything about your life when you be filled with the Holy Ghost. It is a sign that you have surrendered. We know that the universal sign of surrender is for someone to take a white cloth and walk up with their hands in the air and wave it, understanding, listen, I have nothing in my hands. I have no weapon in my hands. I have nothing that can harm you. All I am coming, I am surrendering myself to you. You have won. And that is a clear indication for anyone who has been facing a threat. And you now are victorious over your foe because they have stood up in the ultimate act of surrender. And all throughout Scripture, we are given examples of action that is required on the part of the person desiring relief from their current situation. We read in Proverbs chapter 3 in verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Trust. We are required to have action on our part. God is confident in his ability to save. That is why he gave such a broad invitation to whosoever will, let them come. But the ability for salvation to come to your heart is dependent upon your ability to trust. And it is on action upon your side of things for you to have a change or a difference of your current state, status, or direction. 1 Peter 5 and 7 says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. The action is upon us, casting our cares. It is not for us to have uh, things held back. We don't benefit, saints or guests, or anyone listening online, and we appreciate everyone that's in attendance this morning. But I'm here to tell you, there is no benefit in your personal life by holding back things from God. There is no, well, I'll just save, invest part of my life and get some benefit back. But I have a far greater return on my life if I have control of this area. It says casting all your care upon him. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Going back even to the prior verse we just read, 
If you have a burden this morning, all you have to do is cast it down at his feet and he'll lift it from you today. But you have to come unto him. The action is upon each and every one that's hearing this message today. If your burden is not too heavy, it will be just give it time. If you're not laboring under the burden of life and of sin and you haven't had the baptism of the Holy Ghost and be filled with the Spirit and the evidence of speaking in tongues and feel that joy and peace, I'm here to tell you today that the burden of sin may seem like you have it under control for just a little bit, but all it takes is one more step. All it takes is for the fatigue of this world to set in and you realize I am weary. And all of these promises require the believer to have action on their part. And a lot of churches today will recognize someone as saved through passive methods directed at man and nothing acknowledged by God. For some, it is simple as just showing up every service, sitting on a pew. They are counted among the number, and they can sit there so long that they become a part of the church family by default, but they have not experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They have not fully surrendered. And you may be able to blend in for a while, but when you conceive a look on your face and you realize there is no joy, there is no peace. You stand out like a sore thumb. And it's not upon us to judge, but it's for us to pull you in and say, just take one more step this morning. And this message today is for that very purpose. You've been on the fringes for far too long. You've sat through far too many apostolic services. You've had far too many Bible studies. You cannot save yourself. Others may be having you sign a card made up by a man and handing it to an individual. And there's that sense of belonging and you feel like you are saved. Others may say, confess your sins to me and I will forgive you. But I can only forgive things that happen between me and someone else. I can only forgive the actions of our behaviors or something that I did or you did. That's the limitations of my forgiveness and your forgiveness. I cannot forgive your sins that you have been committing. I cannot reach into your heart and begin to wash it and make it clean again. So confessing your sins to a man and expecting you to be absolved of everything that you've ever done is misleading, it's false doctrine, and it's a lie. I can only forgive you. You can only forgive me of our sins. Standing at the front of a congregation and publicly declaring your faith, all of these things are only to be recognized by man. But the plan of salvation clearly laid out in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 is to direct you to God. And we get to observe that beautiful moment when he steps into your life and changes it. We get to confirm when we see the difference of the countenance upon your face. 
and the conduct that is drastically changed and shifted when he gives promises of saying, I'll make you a new creature. Behold, all things are passed away. And, be, and he says, in all things become new. The old is passed away. I can't put new wine in old wineskins. It will burst. And that's what man tries to do. Tries to put a palatable doctrine inside of an old wineskin and they can't contain sin but when he makes you new and fresh and he gives you the right mind and the right things to say everything becomes new if you're tired of struggling in life this morning and you can't seem to get an upper hand on life i'm here to tell you today that god has given a clear plan of salvation you cannot save yourself but he can. There's questions that we ask. What if I don't have the strength to do it on my own? And that is a great question because we cannot. The key to having a loving Savior that can do anything is in our ability to trust him with our life. You see... He laid down his life for us. He laid down his life and was willing to be nailed to a cross because he had confidence in the plan. The man, the flesh of Christ Jesus, the humanity that walked here on earth, believed in the plan, knowing that there is something that's going to come that's greater than me. He preached it time after time. What I find interesting is all the time of Jesus walking here on earth, the three and a half years of ministry that he ministered going from city to city, healing and walking in amongst people and reading their mail and knowing the inward thinking of their thoughts, knowing who was talking to them and knowing deep within their heart who was really talking to them and telling like the woman at the well, you have other husbands and the one that you're with is not even your own and, and you're not even married and he knew all those things. But yet, not one time did he pour out the new birth because he had not yet death, burial, and resurrection. If he was so, as some people like to think, that God is controlling and God wants to um, manipulate me and that's what the church is all about, it, the, the plan that was laid out from the very beginning that Jesus would walk down here, establish followers, believers, establish everything that would need to be said and put into people, his apostles, so they could then preach and teach what he put into them, make the impact, heal and bring people back from the dead and, and make such an impact on their life. But it was a plan that was then handed over to his followers and says, now you execute the plan. But if he was so controlling and so egotistical, you think that a Savior that was making it all about him, wouldn't he have wanted to walk here on earth and walk up and lay hands and save people? But he didn't. It's because he loved us so much, he knew he had to sacrifice himself. When everything that you have is his, and all that you want is his, then you will find that anything that happens is his. It's in full control. 
regardless of the trial, no matter how deep the valley, no matter how high the mountain is, when it's his, he alone is the solver of complex problems. But when you don't have to worry about it because everything is in his hands, you can step back and say, God, it's all yours. I have nothing that I can contribute. I am yielding myself to you. And no matter how complex your problem is, it doesn't matter how bad and it keeps you up at night and you can't wrap your mind around it. It doesn't matter. Stop trying to solve the problems of life and just surrender. You cannot save yourself. We have a great example in Scripture where David sings a song of deep personal inspection. And I appreciate the songs, the worship team this morning talking about through it all. Through it all. So many things, my, my, going through my mind of hearing that very song in the times of my life. Pulling that song up, going through a trial, saying, God, everything's in your hands. Everything is in your hands. But David wrote a song that said the very same thing. He asked God to thoroughly inspect his love, or if you could say his reverence towards the Lord. He says, I want you to inspect me. I want you to look inside of me. I want to have your eyes looking upon my life. But he takes it one step further. And he says in his opening statement, he says, Judge me, O Lord. Judge me, O Lord. And we'll read it in Psalms chapter 26, in verse 1, the Psalm of David. He says, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons. Neither will I go in with dissemblers or people with hidden intentions. I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocency. So I will compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may publish with a voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, in whose hands is mischief and their right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in mine integrity. Redeem me and be merciful unto me. David was saying, I want a full inspection of my life. I have walked and I commend myself. I have held myself to a standard of worshiping him. 
I, God, want you to look down upon me, and I want you to judge me. Keep me out of the grasp of all those people that are around me. Help protect me. And I'm here to tell you today, if that's the company that you're willing to keep, you're going to have to walk away from them so God can guard you and protect your mind. Those influences will continually seek after your best intentions to drag you down and to pull you out of the church. No matter how good you think they are, no matter how much you think they love you, but if you're willing to entertain their thoughts, if you're willing to weigh their opinion, when they're the ones that's trying to destroy everything associated with what's right in your life, and you'll realize they're just trying to deconstruct and take me apart so they don't lose control of me. When they see you become vulnerable with God, they say, I can't do that. Thus, you can't do that. But David was aware of his dedication towards God. Even in a deep state of dedication, he said, try me, prove me, examine me. In fact, this was not just a visual inspection of the outward man, but he says, I want you to inspect the inward man. I want you to take full look at my life. In verse 2 of Psalms chapter 26, he makes a statement. He says, examine me, O Lord, and prove me, and try my reins and my heart. He was opening himself up to something that was not going to be comfortable. He was willing to stand before the God of heaven and have his life scrutinized, knowing this is not going to be easy. You see, David knew who he truly was. He knows the help that he needs is far greater than what he can give unto himself. That is why David, and we know the story of David and his fall with Bathsheba and the things that David did wrong, but there were the things that David did right that kept him through those moments of weakness, that kept him to where he was able to continually putting one foot in front of the other and finding himself in the house of God. Something to note, the Hebrews, when we read the scripture, you see where it talked about try my reins and my heart. The Hebrews commonly spoke of the heart as the place of intelligence or knowledge. But the word reins speaks of the kidneys, which is drawn from the inspection of the inward man. It was the mind, the soul, the seat of desires and affections. You see, David was saying, I want you to look at everything that motivates me, everything that prompts me, everything that I deal with. I want to know, want you to know where I'm thinking, what I want to do, what I desire to do. Everything that motivates me, David, to do what I do, I want you to look at it. I want you to inspect it. I want you to judge it. It was that attitude of being able to submit to the plan of God and what he had in his life that kept David from being an absolute uh, example of destruction. Instead, 
We look at David. Yeah, he had his problems. But God reached down into his life and touched him. It was his willingness for an inspection that allowed him to write another psalm. In Psalms chapter 139, it will be a lengthy reading. It's not even 11 o'clock. we got plenty of time. Lord, in verse 1, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising, and thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, and I cannot attain it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, and whither shall I flee from thy presence? And we like to read this verse of scripture, this very next verse of scripture, and draw great encouragement from it. But it says, if I take, if I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the other most parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. There's a reason why David could write that. He was willing to be inspected. He was willing to be judged by the Almighty God. He was willing to submit to what God had in his life. Because he starts the song by saying, Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. You know my down-sitting and my uprising. When we read about it in Psalms 26, he doesn't say I'm perfect. I'm willing He doesn't say I've got everything right, but he says, you, Lord, I'm looking at you and nothing else. He can then go to this Psalms and begin to say, you have searched me and you know me. And there are some benefits that I have now because does it matter where I go? If I go to heaven, you're there. It's because I've given everything. If I even go to the absolute bottom of the earth, you're there. It doesn't matter if I take up the wings of the morning and dwell in the other most parts of the sea. It doesn't matter because I surrendered to him. Thus, everywhere I am, he's there. And there's a reason you don't feel God this morning. Have you fully submitted to the plan that God has for your life? Can you say, God, here is all of me. I cannot save myself. He goes on to say, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall the light be light unto me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night it shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which is which in continuance were fashioned, 
when as yet they were none of them. How precious are also, also are thy thoughts unto me, O, Lord, o God, and how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. Sounds kind of familiar. He made a declaration in Psalms chapter 26 that says, I want nothing to do with those people. We read here in Psalms chapter 139, he's saying that, God, you are the strength. You have kept me. You have protected me. If you're struggling with things in your life, I'm here to tell you all it takes is a declaration unto a Savior that can wash away everything, that can give you the strength. He can make the crooked path straight. He can make everything attainable of what he promised in the Scripture. But you have to be willing to be judged. Not by me, not by the ministry, not by your brothers and sisters. We cannot judge, but it is God of heaven who reaches down and says, you're sincere or you're not. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I... Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and not I grieve with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred, and I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of ever, in the way everlasting. I'm here to tell you today, no matter what you're going through, this is the answer. It's Jesus. No matter what life looks like in your, in your, you look in your rear view mirror and all you see is the problems of life and all you see is everything you've ever done wrong and you can never seem to find something you did right. You can never wrap your hands around something attain, a tangible that you've done right in your life and you feel like a failure and everything in life has been stripped from your hands. I'm here to tell you, all it takes is Jesus. He is the answer. He is the only answer. But you have to be willing to be judged by the word of God. You have to be willing to separate yourselves from this world. You have to be willing to walk away from some relationships that do nothing to benefit you nor propel you towards being a better person and taking you into the kingdom of God. Don't confuse those statements. We're saying, well, they're a cult and they want to separate me from my family. No, that is quite the contrary. God wants to save you. He wants to save your family. What the word of God wants to do is separate you from your sin. You have to be willing to walk away from the life that you now know and are comfortable with or willing to live with for so many years. God wants to change that situation for you today. You have to be willing to be examined. You have to be willing to let God reach down into your heart and try you. And if there be any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. You are at a waypoint today reason you are in this church is because God is leading your good intentions but he wants you to take that step of faith because you cannot save 
yourself. I want to bring it back to the question that I asked a few moments ago of what if I don't have the strength to do it on my own? If you're willing to submit to God and have a thorough inspection, and here's the benefit. God doesn't then generate some massive report of all your sins and hand that off to Bishop and say, look at who they are. Aren't you ashamed of them? It doesn't happen. But if you're willing to take action and to go down to an altar and repent of those sins, and you're willing to take another step of action, walk over these stairs and step down in the water, and that is where you and the man of God come together. He's willing to baptize you in Jesus' name since you are willing to lay those sins down at an altar. And that is something beautiful. Because you never have to say, Bishop, I did this, 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 and this. I'm ashamed of this, this. I can't, every time I get up, I look through my life. It's always in the forefront of my mind, and I feel like it's chasing me, plaguing me, and it's always dogging my trail. And I feel like an absolute failure. None of those words ever have to come across your lips. But you can talk to Jesus. And he'll take care of every one of those. And when you come out of the water, after being baptized in the precious name of Jesus, you never have to think about those things again. He'll give you strength to overcome them. You never have to tell somebody about them because God has washed those sins away. And it says it is far as the east is from the west. That means they never meet. That means they're gone. They're erased. They're not, oh, maybe just go back to the deleted folder and pull them back out. No, that doesn't happen. God says, I wash them all away. You see, he'll give you the strength to overcome. When you leave nothing for yourself to pull from on the inside that says, I can do this. When you say, God, I cannot do it any longer. You have to be to that point. Because just because your debit card of life is getting declined, of you don't have joy, you don't have peace, you don't have salvation in your life, you can't pull out a credit card that has an unlimited supply of resources and bail yourself out of this charge of life because the Word of God tells us every man, woman, and child will have to stand before the day, the throne of judgment, on that day and be judged. So either get judged in an apostolic service and allow God to come down into your heart and you surrender everything to Him or there will be a day when you cannot control the judgment. It's Him sitting there saying, I thought I gave you every opportunity. Remember on that Sunday morning, Brother Goff was preaching and he compelled you. He was wanting you. He preached the word that I gave him. He's saying, if you will just submit, if you'll just make yourself vulnerable to God, I'll fix everything. And those same words will be echoed either then or you can obey them now. You have to understand, I have no malice, no mil uh, will, uh, intent that's, uh, that's 
not good against somebody. I'm not wanting to see someone fail. I don't want to embarrass anybody. All I want you to know is I've done it. Many others have, and so can you. There is peace, and just letting God have full control. The end result is worlds apart for when you do something and from when the Lord gives you the strength. You see, David makes this very clear as he testifies to the power of the Lord. David proclaimed the place of safety, the house of the Lord. Going back to Psalms chapter 26 and reading the last verse of Scripture that we did not read earlier, we read verses 1 through 11. But reading Psalms 26 and verse 12, it says, My foot standeth in an even place. In the congregations will I bless the Lord. David says, I will go to the house of the Lord, but he doesn't just stop there. Attendance is great. Attendance is wonderful. And thank you each and every one for being in the house of God this morning. But it doesn't just stop with attendance. Because David walked into the house of the Lord and began to bless his name. Began to declare the greatness of the Lord. How else would you show appreciation than to go to the house of a friend and publicly acknowledge them? If someone did something so great, so marvelous, that money cannot buy it, words cannot adequately describe what it means to you, you would then make a public declaration and say, I can't begin to repay back this person who did this for me, but I want you all to know what they did. And we would say it loud and proud. We would no doubt get that person up there next to us, Brother Hilton, and say, Quiet, everybody. I have something I need to say. This brother right here did something that I don't even know how they did it. But they went above and beyond my wildest expectations. And you begin to say things about them. And you're telling everybody about them. When we come to the house of God, it's the very same thing. We come and we offer worship unto a God of heaven who came down robed in flesh humanity walked here on earth felt our pain and was willing to be sacrificed for you we have it upon us to declare his greatness making that public declaration in Psalms chapter 22 and verse 22 Psalmist writes, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. He's saying, listen, I'm going to let everybody know what happened in my life. There is beauty in the statement that David made where he's talking about where his foot is standing. 
In verse 12, he says, My foot standeth in an even place. The word means just that. A level region, a plain, evenness. The place of righteousness is a place that only God can make. And when we place all of our trust in Him, the transformation is real. You don't have to make up a new behavior when you're filled with the Holy Ghost. When you're renewed again, you feel that joy, that peace, that contentment. You love everybody because the transformation is real. When you desire the Word of God, when you desire to come to the house of God, when everything in you is saying, I can't believe this has happened in my life, this is too good to be true, God has placed you in an even place. He's fighting your battles. God takes the way that is tough and gives us strength. And there's two verses of Scripture in Isaiah that describe what David's talking about where his foot is in an even place. A place that has now been made flat. Where I can now maintain balance. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 4. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight and the rough areas plain. That's the benefits of living for God. Isaiah 42 and verse 16. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. What a promise. When it seems like you can't get your head above water and you can't figure out which step to take and it feels like every way you go is just a path of destruction, trust Jesus. We read right here in the Word of God. I don't even have to give my testimony. None of us have to stand up and say, Brother Goff's right. This happened in my life. We just have to read the Word of God. He will make a way where there seems to be no way. Here's the problem with life. It seems easy to go down the path of sin. But have you ever tried to climb an incline? And you're sitting there and you're climbing, your feet are slipping and sliding, and you're starting to go up and you make it, and you're like, oh, I want to go to the top. I want to go there. And then you realize, well, that may not be the right direction. That may not be the right place to go. And then you turn around, and your perspective has totally changed. Because the effort to go down is far greater than the effort is to go up. You may say, well, I, I got this. I got the cardio. But when you have to go back down, your head's at the total opposite. Instead of you leaning forward and climbing and using your hands and knees and grabbing onto something to pull you up, when you turn around and try to get yourself off the mountain of sin that your life is in, you cannot do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. Remember the time where the family, we were in Utah, and we had taken a path that I had uh, inadvertently led our family up. And it was not a path. Uh, it was just a, way, a place that was worn. And it was not one that you would want to go up. And so we got our backpacks, our trekking poles, and we're just 
going up this, and it's to the point, Brother Larson, to where you're climbing, your feet are sliding, but you're like, it, it has to crest this, and then you keep, you don't think about the way back, because you, all you're thinking of is, once I get to the top, I'll just keep going. And all seven of us, we're just climbing and just forging through it and going, and I get to the top, and it's a straight drop-off. No rails, no nothing. And I said, what are we going to do now? Here I am with children that are young teenagers, seven, eight, nine years old. How am I going to get my kids and my family off of this? And so we just devised a way where we would help each other. And we used our trekking poles, and we'd grab hands, and we would link and start working our way back down. And literally, we had to form a chain as some would start sliding to grab a hold of them and keep them from going all the way down. And eventually, we inched our way down. The way we went up was like this. But the way we went down was sideways and having to keep our center of gravity low and grabbing anything and jamming a trekking pole into the soil or the rock, whatever it was, to keep us from sliding. And it took all of us to get down. I didn't think, say, well, I'll see you all at the bottom and just walk off. It would have been impossible. Life is the very same way. You're going to get to a point to where it's a do or die. You have to get off the mountain of sin eventually. Because it says the pleasures of this life, the pleasures of sin are only for a season. You know what that means? Everything that the world says is good is going to come to an end. And you're going to turn around and say, this isn't what I signed up for. This is not what I want in my life. And you're going to realize if I take one more step, it's my destruction. I have to go back. You have to make the same decision that I with my family had to do. I have to trust in something other than myself. I could not get off of that mountain by myself. Even though I had all the strength that was stronger than my family, if I was on that same path that I decided to take our family on, I could not have come down that mountain without possibly injuring myself. And as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, Xander even broke free and started sliding, and we grabbed him and kept him from going to the bottom. It takes someone else to help you. You cannot save yourself. You need to hear the word that God is wanting you to hear this morning. Stop trying to do it on your own. Lean on the promises that God himself has given you. A loving Savior did not come to this world to leave us alone to deal with the pains of this life. And wherever you are today, God wants you to know that you're in the right place. Pain in the body is managed depending on where the pain is located. For example, if it's painful to walk, the body develops a limp to limit the pressure placed upon the wounded part of the body. Now getting old, as it's coming upon me, you realize you slept in the wrong position or you look at that floor and you see something laying there and you're like, is it worth it? 
And you're like, nope, I'll grab the vacuum cleaner and get it instead of getting down there on the floor and getting it with your hand. Those questions as a young man, you don't even think twice about. You're like, shoe shopping. Do I get them where they lace or they slip on? You make those decisions, Brother Jerry, based upon the comforts of your body and your ability to hold your breath while you're tying your laces. You make decisions in life, but when it comes to your spiritual side, sometimes we get so stubborn and hung up on something, this is the way it has always been, thus, this is the way it always has to be. We don't always have to be doing things that hurt us. Reminded, I think it was Bishop who shared this story about someone who went to a doctor said, doctor, I'm in a tremendous amount of pain. Everywhere I poke, it hurts. The doctor's like, we have a broken finger. It's not everywhere else. It's your hand, your finger that hurts. But the body responds to pain with a mitigating solution to try to reduce the pain. Our hands respond to physical pain. If you've ever sprained an ankle, immediately you fall to the ground. And what do you do? You don't yell at your foot. You grab it with your hands and you hold it. You know that there's comfort there. If you've ever walked into something, and some of you that are a little more vertically challenged don't run into the same issues that I do, but I've hit my head so hard sometimes you see stars. And I don't sit there and just look around and try to count them. Your hands go to your head and you just try to rub it. You're like, I just got to stop moving for a second. And you're sitting there. The pain is so great. Physical pain is hard to manage because we're limited to managing the circumstances and the effort is put upon the body to try to mitigate that. I don't know if you parents have ever stepped on this dangerous foe. And I believe if the Apostle Paul had been a parent in our day, the thorn in his side would have been a piece of Lego. If you have ever stepped in the middle of the night and just been walking through thinking, I know my way to the bathroom. But a child has left a partially built Lego on the floor, and you step on that with the full weight of your body. You realize how mighty that little thing is because it will have you jump in the air. It will have you limping. It will have you laying on the ground rubbing your foot because of some stupid piece of plastic. I'm telling you, Apostle Paul would have named it. We wonder what it is, but I can tell you, it's probably a Lego. But when we talk about the emotional pain, it causes us to respond in a different way than physical pain. Emotional pain can be held. You know why? Because it's held in the heart. Emotional pain, you feel it, you rub it, You hurt, and it just gets you to your very core. We can develop emotional limps to hide the hurt. We can try to suppress it, but no matter how hard you try, it still hurts. It can be words that others have said, thinking of people from the past, or even people from the present that influences your thinking. 
It could be people that are in the church and it makes you have things that are ill against the church family. It could be people at your job and you just wince every time the alarm clock goes off and you have to get up and go and face something that creates pain. They hate me. They've told me they hate me. They don't like me. And those words go to your very core. And all the while, the heart of you, the very core of you is holding pain. And sometimes you think you can make it. Time may address it to where it doesn't hurt as much. Just like hitting your hand or hitting your head. And eventually it'll start to get better and the pain will subside and but you still look and there's a bruise, there's a mark. But within the heart, that pain can last for years. Here's the problem. It grows. It will actually morph from pain to bitterness. It is not something that you can wake up every day and say, I've got this pain that's bothering me. But because it's on the inside... It begins to change you. The things on the outside, I can look at a knife and say, if I poke myself, it's going to hurt. And I can keep my distance from that knife every day. I can lay it open on my desk. But I know if I pick it up and poke myself willingly, it will hurt. But pain in the heart, sometimes you don't even see it coming. It could just be a simple text where someone says, I haven't seen you in a while. Where you been? And it's an old friend. A friend that you tried to distance yourself from because of all the pain associated. And that heart has become a sponge for absorbing pain. And you think, oh, I'll just wring it out. I'll just not think about it. I'll just suppress it. And then all it takes is a faint memory come back. And the devil has a way of doing this. When you're starting to do right, he'll bring those things back and dredge them up from the past. And it's all about others. See, God forgave you of your sins. But you're still hanging on to the ones of others. And God wants to reach down and save you from yourself. Because he gave of himself so that all may find where he's at. The God of heaven went further to save you than anyone else you know. He reached deeper than anyone could do within their own human capability. He loves you more than anyone else could ever love you. In fact, his love is so powerful that it's big enough to save the entire world. Have you ever had a day to where your mind is just at capacity and someone walks up to you and says, hey, I got something I want to run by you. And you're like, listen, now's not the time. You're going to be talking and I will not be able to really comprehend. I have too much going on right now. I do not have the capacity. Can you just let me decompress for a little bit? Sure. But the world doesn't do that. The world reaches down, and it tries to tax you every day. And as deep, as dark, and filthy as your sin is, you can never 
attacks the love of God. Because if you can, it would then prove there is a limit to what God can forgive. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you think I'm too far gone to ever be loved, cared about, or even saved, let's read about a man who lost everything except the people who wanted to judge him. In this passage of Scripture in Job, we find a man, Elihu, who steps up to Job and speaks to him and highlights the ways that God uses to get our attention. And what the friend said was judgment. God uses to reach for the soul of man. Don't let your sins judge you into damnation, but lean on the everlasting arms of God. In Job chapter 33 and verse 27, we see Elihu says, He looked, speaking of God, looked upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not, he delivered their soul from going into the pit. And his life, the person who was delivered, his life shall see the light. Lo, all these things worketh God oft times, oftentimes with man to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened with the light, with light of the living. God uses the preached word of God to reach down into your situation and to pull you back from the pit of sin. Just as the word of encouragement or the word of instruction as Elihu was trying to provoke the thinking uh, of Job and then Elihu was pursuing to be released from this conversation, we find that he's calling him back. Say, Job, you complained about the dreams. You complained about the things going in your life, but I'm here to tell you God uses it to prove that he can bring you back for what seems like the precipice of destruction. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18. And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Wouldn't it benefit you better to just submit to the judgment of God? Here on this earth, when you have the opportunity to come to an altar and say, God, forgive me. Instead of hearing the word say, depart from me, ye worker of iniquity, of lawlessness. God is willing to make the mountain flat. He's willing to raise the valley up and make it level. He's willing to make the road that seems like you can't even figure out which way to go. He's willing to make it straight if you'll just allow yourself to be submitted to the judgment of God. In Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 12, Go and proclaim these words towards the north, and say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. 
and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. He just says, listen, just acknowledge what you did and talk to him about it. I don't want to hear about it. You just got to talk to him. That's the only thing you got to do is you got to allow your actions to be judged by God, not by man. Something I feel to say, and I didn't have it in my notes. Be careful how you pray for sinners. Be careful for how you pray for people who have walked out on God. And I've done it myself. I'm guilty. Raising my hand. Guilty. Saying, God, make them miserable. And you're like, God, I want them so miserable that they realize it's not what they thought it was. And so by my thinking of making them miserable, I want them to figure out somehow to make themselves make their way back to God. Or if they've never been in church, come to me and say, I'm ready. But in Romans, it talks about a passage, and I don't want to try to take anything out of context. I know that was written to believers. But in this passage of Scripture, he's talking about people, if I remember correctly, talking about people who know to do right and don't do it. But at the very end of this excerpt of Scripture, it talks about it's the goodness of God that draws men to repentance. If I were to be so selfish to try to impose my timing on someone else's life and say, God, I want you to make them so miserable they hate their life. We can only assume that they'll come running back to God. But what if they don't and they decide to take it? Because I, in my selfishness, Brother Hilton, said, they're not sitting next to me, God. I want you to make their life just living misery but what if a God who sacrificed himself died on a cross felt our pain gave us every promise of making our life right what if we were telling them I'm praying for you and I want God to bless you maybe there is an example to where they do run out that clock And it is justifiable for whatever actions they're doing. I don't know. I'm not the judge. But what if they understood where the house of blessing was? I'm not saying God will honor and bless sin. But he will compel them by his goodness. He will draw them and woo them. Now if... I were to go and brag every day with people I work with, the home cooking meals I get, you can't even put a price tag on them. You cannot even um, find a restaurant that can even make a meal like what I get every day. And then they got their appetite so worked up, they says, I want what you have. But if I've been praying boxed meals on them, And that's what they see me as. They don't see me as an encouragement. But all they see me is looking at their sin and yelling at them. But if I don't take the goodness of God that I've experienced and turn around and try to feed those on the outside, what have I done? It's just like the bakery that doesn't sell all their goods at the end of the day, and they take them and they throw them in the dumpster.
We have an obligation, saints, to take the goodness of God and let others feel it. And if you have the opportunity to teach a Bible study or to witness to a sinner or a backslider, it is not for us to yell and scream at them and condemn them. Listen, they know. They feel the condemnation. You don't have to preach or teach really anything. If you live with love in your heart, just as Bishop was talking about the church at Philadelphia, if what they feel is love, love will condemn sin. And that's all that matters. You don't have to know the sin. You don't need to sit down and observe them and judge them and critique them. What they need to feel is love. And that's the goodness of God. Because real love, it's hard to find. Because everything else, people look through dating apps. They look good. Their bio looks good. They begin to realize who that person is. And they realize they're just a profile. That's all they are. They're not true love. But when someone feels love, my, they're willing to walk away from everything and say, I am so glad to be a part of the family of God. I want to take us back to our text in closing, if the musicians would come this morning. The same instructions for freedom from sin, it still applies today. Our text gave a promise, but it was not limited to a select few. It clearly states the audience. The only name you must mention to receive this promise is Jesus. You can try to figure out life on your own. But Peter, when asked what it, what it would take to be saved, was giving this very same passage of scripture to a host of Jews who thought they had it all together that could under the old law save themselves by going and sacrificing and going and making things according to the law but Peter turned all of that on its ear when he said in verse 37 now when they heard this they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And if you're sitting here today wondering, How can I finally be happy? I'm here to tell you this is the right place to be. Because in our text we read, For the promise is unto you and to your children. And to all that are afar off, this is not an exclusive membership or club, but it is for whosoever will, let them come and draw from the waters that live and breathe within you and changes your life. And he says, with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves. What he's saying is, do something about your situation. Stop trying to be content in the life of sin you're living. Separate yourself from the naysayers. Separate yourself from those that do not want to do any good in their life. You need to distance yourself and you'll get the promise. And the ones that gladly received this word, guess what? They were baptized. And the same day, they're added to them about 3,000 souls. It was because they were willing to be separate. They were willing to be judged. They were willing to take their path a different way to what God wants. 
It's not accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and then you'll find salvation. I grew up with countless folks who believed that was the way. I watched countless people that I went to school with during chapel when I went to a school that did not preach truth. And I watched countless of them go up on Wednesday at chapel time and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Say a prayer that was only repeating what somebody else had told them to say. And they get up and there was no chapel. I watched them get up and still cuss on the basketball court at a Christian school. Watch them still talk about the filth of this world and the things they watched at a Christian school. But they had accepted Christ and there was no change. But the promise is unto you and all of those that are here today because he said to repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ not just for the joy of it, not just because you can and you have the opportunity, but it's for the remission of sins. If you ever get tired of looking in the rear view mirror of life and you would like for God just to take and rip that thing off of your window and allow you to look at the future and only worry and only live in the glimpses of what God's going to give you and, and the promises that he's given us and we walk in them and feel the joy of the Holy Ghost, if that's what you want, it's repentance. But if you like looking in the rearview mirror, if you like dragging the sins around behind you like a caravan, then don't do anything different today. But if you want to be different, today's the day. It's being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And the promise is that you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's because in this repentance process, it's saying, God, I want nothing to do with my old life. But I only want what you have in my life. The response from Apostle Peter was direct and exactly what Jesus had commanded them to do. But the last few verses, if you will stand this morning, Titus chapter 3, it says in verse 3, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, Serving divers lust and pleasures, meaning many different lusts, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, we have a process for those that have been filled with the Holy Ghost to get this renewing again and again and again. It's the same process who someone who has never experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's the very same way. But we all have a past who were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, the lusts of the flesh, the pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But what came up? The goodness of God. The same one that we want to share to everybody we invite, every backslider, everyone who's listening online, everyone who walks in the door. It's the goodness of God that brings souls to repentance. Not your judgmental look, not looking them up and down and saying they're not got it all together. But it is the goodness of God working through you, working through me, that it flows out of this church. The love of God reaches down and changes lives.
Second Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The door is open for who? Soever will, God is knocking at the heart of your soul right now. Revelations chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. That's telling me, saints, and anyone who's listening to this message, that whatever it is you're struggling with, if you'll open the door to your heart, if you're willing to let God come in and examine your heart, you will have blessings that flow in your life, things that sustain you. We'll keep you, strengthen you, feed you. And when you feel like I can't do this on my own, you're right. But you got to open the door. Amen. Can we lift our hands and our voices unto him this morning? I thank you, Savior, for this opportunity to deliver the word that you have given, Master, for this church, for this time, this season. God, you know the hearts as they sit here today. God, you know the word that's rested upon them. God, I ask you to reach down. Allow us each and every one. I want to examine my heart this morning. And I encourage you, saints, let's find a place to pray. Let's look at our hearts. And I would would implore you to reach down into wherever it may be. God, I want to use the example of David. I want you to reach down into my heart. Search my heart. If you find any evil thing, any wicked thing, remove it from me. Allow me to walk in your ways, God, the everlasting way. I thank you, Master. Hallelujah. Let's talk to him this morning.